welcome you to the second uh, Lewis Clark Vexunum lecture by Frank Wilczek. And uh, this le these lectures fit into this wonderful uh, tradition of high quality science lectures that go back um, almost 100 years in this series. And Frank will continue the story in his discussion of fundamentals. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for coming on this beautiful afternoon. And uh, without further ado, I'm going to begin again where I left off. Let me remind you what we're up to. We're discussing fundamental propositions that I think have mind-expanding and cultural value that come from the deep study of science. Uh, these I discussed last time. We perceive only a tiny portion of reality. The physical world is comprehensible. The basic laws are mathematical. The basic laws are mathematical. And the basic laws predict probabilities. I'll take those as established. And today I'm going to discuss uh, these five principles, that the universe is very big, very old, that the state of the universe, not only the laws, but the state of the universe is comprehensible in broad terms, that vast opportunities are presently unexploited, and that there's still plenty we don't understand, and I'll be sp specific about that. <laughs> so, uh, the world is a very big place. This is uh, a lesson in humility, but also a lesson in uh, pride, pride that we can understand such a thing, and also uh, a lesson in perhaps uh, ambition, because uh, as you'll see, uh, it suggests when thought about carefully that uh, there are big opportunities left. So uh, this is probably, and this being Princeton, I think this is broadly familiar to uh, almost everyone in the audience, uh, the universe, the macroverse, space, is very, very big. Uh, we can reliably measure the distance of stars and galaxies, distant objects, based on the idea of a cosmic distance ladder. Nearby objects, we can uh, triangulate from the Earth's motion around the sun and get uh, estimates of their distance. Uh, then we can make a catalog of stars that have given properties. And when we see the same stars laid out on the sky uh, further away, we can tell how far away they are by their distance. And then uh, by similar steps, we can bootstrap ourselves using at the higher levels of the cosmic distance ladder uh, special kinds of stars called Cepheid variables, and then uh, ultimately supernovas to go to the very largest distances. And in that way, uh, there are many, many checks. We can re get a reliable measure of the distance of many uh, objects that are very far away, even though uh, what we see is a two-dimensional projection of the sky. Uh, I think another measure of 
the bigness of the universe, less familiar perhaps, is at least equally impressive and uh, very instructive when we come to the later discussion of the dark matter problem. Let's compare some densities. Water, which is the density of uh, people also and of most forms of ordinary matter. You know, rocks weigh a few, are a few times as dense, uh, but basically ordinary matter has this density, one gram per cubic centimeter. The best vacuums on Earth that people have been able to produce have a much smaller density, uh, 10 to the minus 20 grams per cc. And to get that kind of density, you have to work very hard with vacuum pumps, keep things cold, and do a lot of sophisticated tricks. So uh, to our shame, perhaps, you can do better by far by just going to a random place in the galaxy. <laughs> the galactic average of density is four orders of magnitude smaller, 10 to the minus 44 grams per cc, which is easy to remember because it corresponds to one atom, roughly, per cubic centimeter. And then the universal average is about a million times smaller. So the galaxy on the scale, as undense as it is, uh, compared to ordinary densities, is a million times denser than the typical region in space. <coughs> when we look out on the night sky and study with telescopes, we see many, many galaxies, uh, all obeying the same physical laws, all with stars showing the same detailed kinds of spectra, and uh, obeying the same laws of motion, apparently, uh, separated, as we've seen, by great distances, near copies separated by great distances. It's a vast wasteland out there. Oops. And uh, we, of course, in this enormous scheme, uh, are very, very small. <coughs> I'll shortly show a video that makes this visual and graphic. On the other hand, people are pretty big compared to the basic scales of physics, compared to the building blocks of matter. Uh, the number of atoms in a human being is roughly equal to the number of stars in the universe. And as I'll elaborate further uh, when we talk about quantum bits and quantum computing, and we've already alluded to a little bit before, uh, when we treat the world quantum mechanically, uh, it's not only that there are a lot of things in apparently small places, but that these things uh, behave, or to, to describe how they behave, you have to uh, employ spaces of enormous dimensionality. You may have heard in the popular press about 
debates in physics about whether the world is four-dimensional, that is, three space and one time, or six-dimensional, or 11-dimensional. Uh, in fact, the world, to describe the world of five spins in quantum mechanics, five spins of atoms or electrons uh, fixed in space, in place, without taking into account their motion, just how their spins are aligned, you need a 32-dimensional space, as I'll describe later. So there's plenty of room at the bottom, especially if you live in the, quant the world of quantum mechanics. There's a big, lots of room in Hilbert space for the mathematicians. <laughs> so in that sense, we're very big. I'm not sure what that was. Uh, <laughs> uh, and this, I think, is profoundly encouraging for our ambitions because it means that uh, we have vast resources at our disposal. Okay. There's lots and lots of stuff properly considered uh, within even small uh, arrangements of matter. One crude but already but already extremely uh, impressive, at least to me, manifestation of this is that uh, my computer chip, which is a tiny little, the CPU is a tiny little thing inside this laptop, uh, can often beat me at chess. <laughs> okay, so I'd like to, dis to finish this discussion of uh, the bigness of the universe and the bigness of the uh, microverse uh, with a video, which is, a, I think, extremely elegant. It's French, so not surprising that it's elegant. And it takes us from the very largest structures, the uh, entire uh, size of the, the entire uh, space that's accessible if you let light travel for the lifetime of the universe since the Big Bang, uh, down to subatomic scales, step-by-step uh, step in factors of 10. So here we go. So the largest scales is kind of fuzzy. That's the microwave background radiation. Each bead is a factor of 10, much, much larger than, say, the difference between me and Shaquille O'Neal. Thank <laughs> you. 
Maybe, maybe straight. <laughs> well, well, I'm glad you enjoyed that. Okay, so, but if, it's extremely impressive if you think about what you just saw. Okay, and uh, each step was a factor of ten. There were many, many, many steps on both sides, from human scales uh, up and from human scales down. <clears throat> so this is clearly one of the great lessons of uh, modern science. Similarly, the world is a very old place. Uh, modern cosmology has given us a fairly reliable timeline for the development of uh, structure in the universe. Uh, and uh, if by now, a precise date back to this time when the universe reached much, much higher densities and much, much higher den densities, which we call the Big Bang. Uh, a few years ago, it was debated whether this number was 20 or 10, that uncertainty was a factor of 10 or 2. Now, people debate about the second and third decimal place. Uh, we can say that the universe is to, uh, quite reliably, uh, to this precision, 13.7 billion years old. Uh, And uh, for a long time, it was dominated by uh, hot radiation, too, power too powerfully ionized to uh, congeal, also too hot to congeal. Also, it was very homogeneous at first. Uh, I'll discuss later how structure forms in the state of the universe. Uh, stars start forming fairly soon, then uh, the bulk of stars and galaxies. Uh, and uh, we switch from a time when one form of non-ordinary matter that we don't understand is most of the mass in the universe to a time when uh, another form of density and mass in the universe that we don't understand is most of the density of the universe uh, changed <coughs> over about five billion years ago. And uh, here you see, as you go, the different kinds of objects that are characteristic of the different times. Uh, the Earth congealed from uh, its interstellar gas around 4.5 billion years ago into a recognizable body. Uh, about 3.5 billion years ago, life started to emerge. That, that's not so precise, but something like that. Uh, life was very simple for a very, very long time until about 550 million years ago when, uh, multi, when they're the first multi-celled creatures. And then humans emerged uh, right at the last moment here, about, uh, about 100,000 years ago. The thing I want to emphasize about those last two things is that uh, there wasn't a big gap in time compared to the lifetime of the universe or 
the uh, lifetime of the Earth between the Earth forming and life emerging on Earth in simple forms, but there was a very large gap to uh, forming multicellular objects, and then a significant gap to forming anything that could be called uh, intelligent. So that's another way in which uh, the universe appears to be kind of a wasteland. Uh, there's a lot of wasted time. If you think the idea was to produce intelligent life. <coughs> the indicators of age, I want to emphasize, are quite reliable and straightforward. Uh, we can measure the speed of distant objects from their redshift, and then knowing their uh, distance, we can infer uh, how long life is, uh, has, well, how, how long light took to get there. So uh, we can, we can get the age of life on, Earth, on, on earthly objects uh, from the fossil record and radioactive dating. A better way of saying, I, should, I said that, I kind of fumbled that. A better way of saying uh, this first point is that because of the finite speed of light, when we uh, look at distant objects, we're also looking into the past. So we can see when objects start to look different and uh, in that way construct that cosmic timeline I showed you. <coughs> now, uh, it's not often discussed when we discuss, it's kind of uh, taken for granted when people discuss that the universe is very old. Uh, the issue compared to what? It's very old compared to uh, the times we deal with in everyday life, clearly, is what people mean. Now, where do those times come from? Well, there's the speed of thought, which has to do with nervous transmission, which has to do with the limiting factor, is how fast ions diffuse across synapses in the brain, uh, because messages in the neural code are transmitted and encoded in the properties of synapses. Uh, and that time scale is kind of uh, something like milliseconds to seconds. Then there's the speed of a human life, or the lifespan of a human. Uh, that's the other thing that the universe is very old compared to. Uh, that's set by the speed of aging of humans. And aging is a process that biologists are just beginning to understand. Uh, but one thing that's clear is that these speeds, both the speed of thought and the speed of aging, are very remotely connected to fundamental physics and chemistry. They are much, much shorter than the scales at which the universe is changing. So there's plenty of time to make uh, adjustments. And on the other hand, they are much, much slower than basic chemical, let alone nuclear processes that take part, that, that take place in uh, small, small fractions of a microsecond. Uh, this suggests that there's plenty of room for engineering, both for 
making us more quick-witted and for making us uh, live longer and stay young longer. I wish it would come soon. <laughs> in, in this context, it's uh, also appropriate to talk about not only how big the past is, but how big the future. Uh, at present, if we extrapolate what we know about cosmology and uh, suppose that that's the picture we have now is adequate and doesn't need uh, major changes, uh, which is always the working hypothesis, and at the moment I'll stick my neck out and say it looks pretty good. Uh, the, if we extrapolate the known laws of physics, this dark energy that was discovered only a few years ago takes over, it dominates. Uh, it's been dominating for five billion years, but it was just discovered five years ago. <laughs> uh, so it causes, uh, it causes the universe uh, to expand at an accelerated rate. Uh, people before this discovery of the dark matter, dark energy, thought that um, the rate of expansion of the universe would be slowing down due to gravitational attraction. But in fact, the dominant effect appears to be this negative pressure, this accelerative uh, force due to the dark energy. And so the universe will expand at an, at an ever-increasing rate in the future as this component of its content comes more and more to dominate. And so the galaxies in general will recede from each other, things that aren't bound to each other by local, more powerful forces will, uh, will uh, separate. And uh, what we'll be left with in the far future, say 20 or so billion years from now, is our galaxy and Andromeda will be falling into us, which are tightly bound together gravitationally, uh, will be isolated by much, much greater distances from the rest of the universe, and then it just gets worse as time goes on. <clears throat> and stars burn out. So not only are there no galaxies out in the sky, uh, but uh, the stars also uh, wink out gradually. It looks like a depressing uh, prospect for the long-term future. But <laughs> We're talking about a long, long time, and as I emphasized already, uh, there's plenty of room at the bottom, also in time. Our time scales, at which we think uh, are uh, not closely tied to fundamental physical limits, and so uh, maybe at the cost of uh, plugging into computers or uh, some creative engineering uh, people or their descendants will be able to think much, much faster, and they'll have billions of years to do it, so uh, not to worry. <laughs> and also, I think more profoundly, we shouldn't overestimate our present understanding, which has changed radically 
even in the last few decades, uh, nor underestimate future ingenuity. So uh, I hope many, one of my favorite movie scenes, which maybe many, some of you will be familiar with, was the young Woody Allen uh, worrying, getting really depressed and going to a psychoanalyst because uh, he heard that the universe was gonna, uh, was expanding and was, was, was going to uh, have this kind of heat death. And uh, his, his mother says, uh, why can't you be a normal person and worry about girls? <laughs> Whoops. Oh, okay. So well, I have another video which is a little bit silly, so I think I'll quit. I won't show it. Unless someone asks me later. Oh, come on. All right. That's <laughs> good enough. Uh, this, this, this is not Woody Allen, I'm but uh, this is a brief history of life on Earth. So to conclude the discussion emphasize those points about the gap between formation of the earth being small, between the formation and life of the earth being small, and between uh, original life and multicellular life, and then between multicellular life and They were only quiet frogs in the saloon. Sorry, I don't know why it's not on the screen, but. Some of you at least enjoyed that. <laughs> all right, now, uh, okay, so that's all I wanted to say about the universe being very big and very old. There's a lot more to say about it, but uh, I think in broad terms, these concepts are uh, well understood. Uh, the state of the universe is the state of the world, not only the laws, but the actual state of the world. I claim is also broadly comprehensible. We understand how it got this way. We comprehend how it got this way, I should say, in the sense that I use the word comprehend. We can make a simple hypothesis, much simpler than the observed structure that, ex that uh, accounts for the observed structure. <clears throat> and 
Here I'll just show an icon, which uh, it's very appropriate especially to be showing at Princeton because this is uh, largely a, a product of uh, work at Princeton and definitely the outcome of a grand tradition uh, at Princeton of measuring the uh, microwave background, the, the sky in the microwave part of the spectrum uh, with great precision. Uh, it doesn't look like this. Well, it doesn't look like anything because, of course, we don't see microwave colors, that part of the spectrum. But uh, even in false color, this, this is a tricky thing to interpret. What you're seeing here is not the relative brightness or darkness of the different parts of the microwave sky. In fact, it's a very uniform haze. But if you magnify the contrast, take out the average, and then manifest, manifest, uh, magnify the contrast by uh, 10,000, it starts to look like this. So there, are, on top of the general background, there are tiny inhomogeneities, roughly a part in 10,000 uh, 10, or 100,000 that uh, are represented in this map. That's what you're seeing. What this is, uh, we believe, on the basis of a uh, very wide variety of uh, arguments, which I'll discuss uh, momentarily, or a very wide variety of lines of evidence, uh, is what we're seeing here is the state of the world when it was roughly 100,000 years old, when, these, when it first became transparent to uh, photons, to light at that time. This used to be light. It was, it's moving very rapidly away from Because of the expansion of the universe, we're moving rapidly away from it, so it gets redshifted and becomes uh, microwave radiation. And uh, this is showing you the, the relative temperature of different parts of the sky back when uh, the light, when the universe became transparent to light. Before that, the gas was so hot that uh, the light couldn't get anywhere. There was so much stuff around. <coughs> and the fact that this is so nearly, but not perfectly homogeneous, is consistent with and is powerful evidence for a very specific and very powerful picture of how structure formed in the universe and how uh, the state of the world came to be what it is today. That is, that the laws of physics we extrapolate from what we know are the same at, all the way back. And the initial state was that uh, there were just tiny inhomogeneities in density of the matter, which was otherwise in perfect thermal equilibrium. So just what you get if you heat things up and wait a long time so they come into equilibrium. Uh, with tiny inhomogeneities in the uh, temperature as a function of space. Uh, this, or, or more accurately, density. So uh, what this means is that you have tiny density contrasts, 
on top of material that we understand uh, very, very well, we think. Uh, I should em emphasize that uh, the state of the world at those temperatures, at that, that where the uh, light first begins to uh, penetrate, and uh, that the state of the universe was at 10,000 years ago, uh, is physics we understand very, very well. That those are conditions we can easily reproduce in a laboratory and test hypotheses about. It's sort of like what you have in a uh, neon sign for the same reason. You want to have this plasma that lets light out. <coughs> anyway, uh, if you have this kind of density contrast, then gravity makes the contrast grow with time. So if you have a denser region, it is more attractive because of its gravity to the surrounding matter, and so it gets denser. If there's a region that's less dense, it's less attractive than its neighbors and doesn't attract anymore, it gets even less relatively dense. So there's a gravitational instability that means that even if you start with very small inhomogeneities, and given that the universe is so old, there's been plenty of time for the, the contrast to grow, uh, and to cool by expansion so that uh, things, the, the, the matter can uh, accumulate and collapse. So uh, that's the overall picture that goes behind that uh, that uh, picture, this one. <laughs> that I threw at you before of formation of structure from that microwave background picture over here uh, by gravitational instability as, it, as different parts of it increase their density contrast and then uh, aggregate, break up, cool, and uh, form uh, astronomical bodies in the form we're familiar with today. What keeps this from being a boring story of just things collapsing and uh, becoming uh, dead rocks is that uh, the collapse triggers when, uh, when, when the matter becomes dense enough in the center of big, big objects uh, that exert enormous pressures at the center, uh, nuclei get pushed together and this, uh, it, it, this liberates lots of energy that the quantum sensor had locked up inside the nuclei. Uh, and then uh, Star, we call that nuclear ignition, and that's what powers stars. And when stars start shining, they uh, impart energy to the surrounding material, and the rest is history. So that's a broad account that can be checked and uh, is supported by several independent lines of evidence. 
besides being the logical consequence of uh, the laws as we know them, it can be checked because it gives an account of the relative abundance of different chemical elements. It gives uh, an account of the existence and the properties of the microwave background radiation. That there's a lot of statistical information in that map of the microwave sky I showed you that uh, can be analyzed and checked against uh, the formation of structure that we see later. And also, uh, so we can calculate the way stars evolve, the way galaxies evolve, the way clusters evolve uh, after they formed, and check, because we can look back and see objects at different stages in their, in their uh, evolution, in their own time, by looking uh, just more and more distant, because thanks to the speed of light, we can compare uh, stars of different ages, galaxies of different ages, clusters of different ages, to see how they start as diffuse objects or, and uh, mature and age as a result of nuclear ignition or gravity or other processes, and check at many states, many uh, levels that this picture of the formation of the state of the universe from by gravitational instability from small seeds that we can actually see is actually uh, correct. A slightly a more speculative but extraordinarily beautiful idea that's uh, connected with what's called cosmic inflation is that we can even understand where those initial fluctuations came from. In uh, these uh, more ambitious models of the early universe that go back further and rely on uh, deeper properties of uh, quantum mechanics and relativity, you find that these homogeneities could have arisen from the inevitable minimal inhomogeneities that we saw as fluctuations in the quantum world. You remember that lava lamp I showed you? these fluctuations that are happening all the time and everywhere as a consequence of the uh, basic laws of quantum mechanics. According to the idea of inflation, the universe early in its history expanded very, very rapidly uh, and by a huge factor. Uh, if you calculate, you can find that these initially tiny fluctuations, subnuclear fluctuations, uh, get expanded to such a size that they could be the seed fluctuations that start off the gravitational instabilities that uh, produce cosmic structure. Or, to put it in an equation, these fluctuations are equal to these fluctuations, just blown up during the process of inflation. <coughs> it's an extraordinary concept, uh, and uh, I think many of us regard it as uh, almost as probably true, it's, but they uh, can't say that it's uh, established at, this, at quite the same level as the other things I've been telling you. Thank <laughs> you.
Okay, so now I'd like to move on to my final two uh, fundamentals, my sort of policy statements. <laughs> One is that vast opportunities are presently unexploited. I'll discuss uh, some frontiers of future technology. I've emphasized that we have uh, a remarkable grasp of the fundamental laws that govern the behavior of ordinary matter under ordinary circumstances with a very, very broad definition of what you mean by ordinary. That certainly includes anything that happens in chemistry or anything that's relevant to material science. The laws of the so-called standard model uh, based on quantum mechanics and special relativity ultimately uh, are extremely well tested and uh, provide adequate foundational equations with uh, adequate accuracy for chemistry and material science. That's quite a profound statement if you think about it. Uh, the reason we have faith in this is that we can check it in simple cases when we actually can do the calculations and compare the model world that comes out of the equations with the actual physical world of things we can measure. And uh, in simple cases that beyond test cases of hydrogen and spectra that we can do uh, very accurately, uh, we can, in situations with uh, high symmetry and uh, uh, relative simplicity of components, we can uh, even calculate uh, real matter and its uh, qualitative and semi-quantitative properties. A recent spectacular example of this that in fact was rewarded with the most recent Nobel Prize uh, on the experimental side uh, was what happened with the substance called graphene. Graphene is, uh, well actually this is not quite graphene. Graphene would be uh, what you get if you continue these black dots forever. <laughs> no hydrogen at the end. It's pure carbon, uh, two-dimensional sheets uh, in a honeycomb lattice arrangement like this. Uh, your pencil, a lead, so-called lead pencil, of course, is not made out of lead. The lead in the pencil is uh, made of graphene as opposed to graphite. Graphene is many layers of this stuff uh, interacting with each other, but basically stacked on top of each other and uh, weakly bound so that, so that you can uh, write with the pencil and leave some behind. Also, graphene, graphite makes a very good lubricant. For many years, physicists and chemists had played with the equations of uh, two-dimensional isolated layers of carbon atoms uh, and calculated the properties that that, that stuff would have. The problem was uh, no one knew how to make it. Uh, despite quite a bit of effort, it was never identified in nature until uh, Andre Geim and 
uh, Novoselov uh, a few years ago uh, did, a, did a, an experiment with uh, scotch tape. What they did was almost literally uh, take a pencil and uh, make a, a smudge on paper, uh, have some scotch tape, put it on the smudge, take it off, and see what was on the tape. <laughs> Examine very, very carefully what's on the tape. Uh, and mostly, so, so you, uh, you were getting uh, several layers, several layer thick graphite, but uh, little patches that could be identified by a careful study of how the different parts uh, scattered light, little patches turned out to be this material, just uh, single layer graphene, and uh, then the remarkable predicted properties of this ideally, sub ideally simple substance could be checked against experiment. And uh, the remarkable predicted properties, which uh, are really extraordinary, I won't be able to do them justice here, but uh, are beautiful illustration of the power of the mathematics of symmetry and the laws of quantum mechanics to uh, elucidate uh, very unusual and unexpected behaviors uh, were indeed seen. Now, after that initial breakthrough, because the properties are very promising, for instance, these two-dimensional materials are the strongest materials known in nature. In, wonder, in, those, in the plane, you can't pull it apart, although you can bend them easily. They also uh, conduct electricity in interesting ways. Uh, so, uh, so there was high motivation to learn how to make it more efficiently, and now it comes off the assembly line in uh, these very, very large sheets. And, and they're going to be used on touch screens, for instance, commercially. And people, be, because of the power of equations and our ability to solve, we were able to, not, we, not me, but people were able to uh, anticipate what the properties of this material is, even though the material had never been produced before. And that enabled rapid progress once you found out that uh, it could be produced by hook or crook in, in, into uh, its uh, technological use. And there are many, many graphene dreams now. Uh, again, because it's such a well-characterized substance, you can uh, use equations to predict how it's going to behave in different properties. This is a fantasy transistor you can imagine making by sculpting graphene. Uh, you can make some, because it's a nice network that's very regular and not very porous, you can trap molecules on it. Also, because it conducts electricity, you can move them around. You can make a very uh, good artificial nose. You can, uh, you can play micro Frank Gehry and make uh, architectures that will enable you to direct diffusion of molecules and uh, control chemistry, perhaps, in new ways. And you can even detect God. <laughs> uh, God, 
God is glucose, oxygen, something. <laughs> but uh, you can use it as a biological sensor. This is the more spelled out version of the nose. <coughs> So that's a success story, an ongoing success story, which is very exciting. Uh, but when we're confronted with more complicated, less symmetrical materials that aren't all carbon, that aren't regular two-dimensional sheets, uh, present-day methods uh, of computing directly from the equations uh, fail. It's a moving frontier. People can uh, get molecular structures for uh, that depending on how accurate you want them for handfuls of molecules, but, but also even for uh, uh, bo mo uh, biological molecules of uh, uh, some considerable complexity. It's a moving frontier, but basically uh, it's not moving very fast or very far, and uh, there are fundamental problems when you try to solve the equations by brute force. The fundamental problem, which I'll elaborate on as I discuss also its possible solution, is that the quantum equations for complex molecules or compound materials rapidly overwhelm the power of computers, which are essentially classical. Let me des describe in more detail uh, what I mean by those words. So classical bits are arrays of ones and zeros. Each bit, each, each entry is a bit. And so this is a bunch of classical bits set to a certain state. Uh, these bits can be lots of things. They can be embodied as directions of, elect of electron spins. Uh, that is kind of futuristic. Uh, Electron spins are very delicate, as we'll see, as I'll emphasize. But uh, you can have alignments of magnetic domains that can be aligned either positive or negative with many spins. Or you could have on-off states of transistors representing the zeros and ones. Or you could have orientations of blue pigeons. In principle, anything will do. <coughs> And all sorts of information, as uh, every child, especially every child knows today, uh, can be stored as configurations of many classical bits. And classical computers, viewed at a high enough uh, level, are simply machines for taking one configuration of ones and zeros into a next configuration, which is related to it in some simple, determinate way. And in that way, you can manipulate the information that these ones and zeros represent. Okay. Quantum bits basically are, instead of using blue pigeons, using Schrodinger cats. Here it is uh, in more of an equation. If you have four quantum bits, its state, instead of being some particular choice, of a zero and a one is all of them, all of them uh, with different probabilities. Or more accurately for, for experts, uh, probability amplitudes. 
these C's are complex numbers, and you can see that uh, if there are four spins, if the spins are the quantum bits, uh, there would be 16 possibilities, 2 to the fourth power. Five spins would be 32, because you could have the last one in each of these being 1 or 0, and so forth. So uh, the dimension of a space is how many numbers you need to represent uh, a point in the space. Okay, you have to, if it's a two-dimensional space, you need uh, a north and an east direction. If it's a three, allowed to be positive or negative, if it's a three-dimensional space, you need up, down, and sideways. I'm sorry, up <laughs> and two sideways directions, uh, and so and so forth. So here, to describe the quantum mechanics of four qubits, four quantum bits, or four electron spins fixed in space, you have fixed in physical space. You need to work in a space of 16 dimensions, and five spins would be a 32-dimensional space, and so forth. <coughs> so these spaces rapidly get enormous. And this opens possibilities, since the spaces are so big, uh, if you want to store a memory, you don't have to just say that this bit is a classic, as to, for a classical bit, you'd have to say which bit it is. If you have a, uh, a bunch of quantum bits for the five-bit memory, say, uh, you would have a huge space of 32 dimensions to, uh, to work in. So uh, you can have extremely dense me memories, and you can do massively parallel information processing. For example, if you take back here this object and switch what is ever, whatever is in the first two entries, then you do something to every single one of 16 classical bits at the same time. A quantum bit is representing 16 possible classical bits, and you're doing, you have that kind of parallelism if you manipulate uh, the physical objects. And of course, four is just the beginning. If you have a thousand of these things, then uh, you're manipulating data streams of uh, far beyond any that are practical in classical computers. So it sounds great, but there's a catch, and the, which is that quantum bits are very delicate. We said if anybody or anything makes an observation, it collapses all these possibilities just onto one uh, reality. And any interaction, unintended interaction with the outside world will collapse this very rich memory, quantum memory that you've stored into a uh, degenerate uh, sub-memory. <coughs> so we have the fascinating challenge for the future technology to build tougher quantum bits or to protect them better 
or to figure out ways to repair the damage done by the outside world, by have building in some kind of redundancy. All these things are being pursued, and uh, I don't know if it'll be 10 years from now or 100 years from now, or, well, I don't think it'll be more than 100 years before uh, this possibility, which is definitely inherent in the nature of the physical world, to uh, exploit the vastness of our interior space is exploited uh, for information processing. And one thing that quantum computers should definitely be good at is solving the equations of quantum mechanics. And then you'll have a kind of bootstrap because you can solve the equations of quantum mechanics to, to figure out better materials out of which to make your quantum computers better and then you can figure out better materials keep going. So it's clear then that uh, eventually the most capable information processing all units, also known as minds, will be artificial intelligences based on quantum computation. Uh, those minds will be delicate. They'll have to be carefully buffered from the outside world. And so uh, they might actually welcome the cold, dark universe that's coming. And it also, if this has happened elsewhere in the universe, uh, suggests an answer to a famous question of Fermi, where are they? Fermi noted this uh, relatively small gap between the emergence of humans with uh, reasonable amounts of intelligence and technological society. Uh, which is only the last couple of hundred years, where the technical, technological society is uh, beginning to make a stir in the galaxy. We're sending out radio waves. We're manipulating large amounts of energy. Uh, what will we be doing in a hundred or a thousand years, which is very small on cosmological scales? We should, if things keep going this way, our existence should be uh, very obvious, Fermi said. And therefore, Somewhere else in the galaxy, where life could have emerged and gone this way a little bit early, earlier on cosmic scales, uh, should already be visible to us. So where are they? And I think the likely answer is that they're hiding in the cold and dark. The better to explore inner space, because that's where most of the action is. <coughs> I mentioned earlier that there seems to be no fundamental physical limit, or I should say that, 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 that the uh, time scales that set human age in going uh, seem not to have a close relationship to any uh, specific uh, physical fundamental time scale. In fact, the leading theory of why aging occurs at the rate it does is that uh, in most of the history of the human race, uh, they were, people uh, didn't live very long before they were de dead by saber-toothed tigers or other uh, natural, more starvation or disease or other things that typically uh, killed people before they got to be uh, much over 25. 
So it was very important to uh, optimize reproductive ability and uh, the, prob uh, the probability of producing uh, offspring before that time, before it was too late. And then what happened afterwards was totally irrelevant because you're dead anyway. So, uh, so uh, genes that had a good effect in the first 25 years but might foul things up down the road uh, were selected for instead of against. Experiments, so this would, this suggests that uh, aging is a product of neglect, that evolution wasn't thinking about this and so didn't do a good job in trying to keep us young, uh, not rather than a fundamental process. And experiments support this. If you uh, do what evolution should have done, from our point of view, <laughs> and uh, in simple creatures and select for ones that are long-lived, then their uh, offspring also tend to be long-lived, and this can be uh, quite a significant quantitative effect. And, uh, well, this could easily be a lecture or several lectures in itself, but several spectacular examples, and, and the lecture should be given by someone other than me, by the way, uh, some spectacular examples and mechanisms of slowing the aging process have been identified in model organisms, like the famous worm C. elegans. Uh, if you turn off certain of its genes, its lifetime increases by a factor of two. Okay. Finally, in this discussion of future technologies, uh, no, this is not Facebook. <laughs> That, I think, is a relatively trivial technology. But uh, we need to make new friends uh, that are, for instance, capable of exploring outer space. Human bodies are not very good at that, but can design friends uh, who will be much more at home in that kind of environment. And uh, that's, that's a very exciting kind of endeavor. Okay, so finally, to end this series of discussions of fundamentals, I'd like to emphasize that we're not done by any means. There's still pleasant, plenty we don't understand. Better answers, in many cases, just inspire more ambitious questions. In fact, the same, quest same sorts of questions often come back at a higher level. And... Uh, it's quite poetic that we had a dark matter problem, remember, connected with the orbit of Uranus that led to the triumphant discovery of Neptune. That was dark matter 1.0. Now we have dark matter 2.0. Recently, astronomers have discovered that normal matter, that is, the stuff that's made out of electrons and photons and quarks and gluons, the stuff we're made out of that we now understand very profoundly, that, that are the subject of uh, chemistry and biology and material science, uh, that that stuff contributes only about 5% of the mass of the universe. So that includes the planets, the stars, the nebulae, creatures, all that stuff. That's the red stuff. 
there's at least two other kinds of stuff called dark matter and dark energy. 70% of the universe is in some stuff called dark energy. Uh, we know very little about it. I'll tell you basically everything we know about it now. Uh, its density is constant in space and time, even though the universe is expanding, so the density of ordinary matter of all kinds is going down. Uh, this stuff seems to have a constant density. We can look back and see what the density was in the past. It's the same as it is now. Uh, as if it were a property, and it's also the same in different directions, uh, as if it were a property of space itself. It also has the very unusual property of exerting negative pressure. So instead of, if you're surrounded by this stuff, instead of being squished, you get pulled apart. <coughs> uh, that sounds really strange, but it's actually a logical consequence, according to the theory of special relativity, of uh, the uniformity of the density in space. And 25% is in some mysterious dark matter that is more normal. It clumps, it gets diluted as the universe expands. Uh, but doesn't clump as tightly as normal matter and is totally impervious, or at least so far has been impervious to very great efforts to uh, get it to respond to light or to uh, observe, observe radiation from it, observe it, observe it uh, absorbing radiation from behind, affecting cosmic rays, anything. The only way it's been detected is through its gravitational influence, just like Neptune was only detected at first through its gravitational influence on uh, Uranus. Here is uh, yet another lying picture. Okay, this uh, purple haze is stuff you don't see. That's the dark matter. Uh, but what it is is the inferred density of uh, matter that's inferred from the orbits of the things you do see, the light stuff. Uh, you need extra material in order to account for those orbits, and it's distributed according to the density profile uh, indicated by the brightness within this uh, object. So that's what the dark matter looks like, and every galaxy that's been carefully studied uh, seems to have a dark matter halo like this. In fact, it would be more accurate to say that the galaxy is, in, is a small inhomogeneity inside the dark matter cloud because the dark matter cloud weighs five or six times as much. We have some promising ideas about what the dark matter is. It goes like, under, like with names like WIMPs and axions. Uh, and a vigorous program to test them, but uh, so far, no positive result. For dark energy, uh, the less said, the better. Unification 2.0. I discussed with you before Maxwell's unification of electricity and magnetism and its marvelous consequences. Uh, when he tried to put together everything that was known about electricity and magnetism at that time, in 1861 into uh, a consistent set of equations. Now, we have the consistent set of equations of the standard model, but we're faced with the following kind of uh, situation. They're not as beautiful as they should be. 
for me to explain that, let me uh, remind you of what something beautiful can look like. Here's a dodecahedron. It's a regular solid. Uh, it's one of the few possibilities for regular solids in three dimensions. Uh, these are solids that have sides that are uh, regular polygons, with all with equal angles and equal sides, and all are the same kind of polygons. So you can have the tetrahedron, the cube, the octahedron, the dodecahedron, the icosahedron, that's all. And uh, it's convenient that the dodecahedron has 12 sides. You can, make, you can use it to make a calendar, which is perhaps familiar. So given that there are so few possibilities, if someone handed you this uh, without explanation, you'd know what it was meant to be. It's meant to be a dodecahedron. You're just supposed to fold it up. Now suppose someone handed you this. Well, some evil spirit erased part of what we had before, made it look disconnected and uh, asymmetrical. But if you knew about regular solids, you would and uh, were imaginative enough to make uh, to imagine that there might be a connection to regular solids, you would say that uh, gosh. I can understand this. It's, it's pentagons, so that's, that screams dodecahedron. Uh, they're lying in this kind of orientation. They're attached like they should be in a dodecahedron. What we should do is fill it in and then fold it up. And you would be right, because that's how I got it. <laughs> OK, so with that in mind, this is the standard model of particle physics that organizes everything we know about the strong electromagnetic and weak interactions, pretty much. Uh, so it's very powerful, very economical, very complete, very accurate, extremely well tested, one of the glories of the human race, uh, but not as pretty as it should be, given that it's something close to nature's last word. It has all these disconnected pieces with these funny numbers here, the average electric charge of, this, of the uh, objects involved, that also has to be specified as part of the theory. <coughs> so uh, if we know how to combine the symmetries of the standard model, which are what it's based on, into larger symmetries, uh, we can ask if there's some larger symmetry that could organize this pattern, similar to the way uh, the symmetry of a dodecahedron organized the pattern of our scattered partial dodecahedron. And there are only a few possibilities, as for uh, regular solids, there are only a few possibilities for making the uh, symmetry of the standard model larger in a, in a economical way, and I wouldn't be telling you all this if it didn't succeed. One of the simplest possibilities for uh, 
postulating a bigger object that, of which we've seen parts of that look disorganized because we didn't realize how to fill it out and fold it up, uh, works. So I certainly won't be able to do justice to the details of this, but uh, take my word for it. It's beautifully organized. Uh, and what it does is for those disorganized, scattered pieces of the standard model, whoops, refuses to come back, yeah. These different particles that seemed not to be related to each other in this larger scheme are parts of one coherent whole. So we would like to fill out our theory with extra particles uh, and interactions to uh, this larger structure, say that some evil spirit, namely uh, structure in what we perceive as empty space, has obscured this pattern somewhat, even though it's the fundamental one. That can be put into equations and uh, well, that's a theory. We're about to test it, as I'll say. Another idea is similar to, in spirit, to the idea of Dirac, which I mentioned, when Dirac made his more complicated equation for a hydrogen atom, for electrons, that included antimatter, so included a kind of mirror matter when you enhanced the equations. Uh, now, we want to sort of work the other way. We, if we have our unification, we understand several different kinds of matter, like electrons and quarks, as being different sides of a dodecahedron, and force particles, like photons and gluons, as being uh, different symmetry operations. But this still leaves two different kinds of things, we'd like to know if we can finish the unification. And we can if we postulate there's a mirror world that changes one of those kinds of particles into another, force particles into matter particles, or more formally, fermions into bosons. That's called the idea of supersymmetry. It's a kind of uh, expansion of Dirac's equation into uh, a larger scheme, and it turns out that those ideas work extremely well together. When you put them together, you find that the different forces of nature, which seem to have different intrinsic strengths as we observe them at small distance, at uh, the distances we observe them, if you extrapolate the equations of our unified theory, including also supersymmetry, then they all come together nicely and really do reflect quantitatively a unification. And even more spectacularly, gravity, which starts out ridiculously weaker than the other forces, uh, also enters the unification uh, uh, accurately. So this is extremely tantalizing. And uh, 
will be tested very shortly at the uh, Large Hadron Collider, the LHC, whether these extra particles that you need to implement supersymmetry actually exist. <coughs> okay. Now, I realize that that wasn't a coherent explanation uh, from, from beginning to end of those ideas about unification. That's not the point, but just to say that uh, there are plenty of things we don't understand, including things that are really big issues that would advance our understanding of the world that are ripe and ambitious that I think we're about to understand with any kind of luck. <coughs> uh, so all those, quest all those issues of uh, dark matter, unification, and mirror worlds, which were the marvelous examples of the success of mathematics in the physical, in the description of the physical world, uh, may uh, have encores in the uh, near future. Uh, so that exhibits both what, that we, there are things we don't know and that we can make progress on those ambitious questions. We've picked on the question of ultimate origins. We've pushed back the frontiers of ignorance to well within the first second of the Big Bang. But the basis of that picture, the basis of this successful account for how the universe started and uh, reached its present state, is Ridiculous. It was the hypothesis, remember, that uh, things were very, very uniform. Matter was very, very dis er uniformly distributed early on. And that's fine. That, that's the equilibrium distribution for matter if you turn off gravity. But gravity's not turned off. Gravity exists. And gravity is only in equilibrium if things clump together. Gravity wants to attract things. So the working hypothesis is that gravity was totally impotent, in effect, in the early universe. But matter was doing exactly what it wanted to do. This is in some tension with the idea that gravity should be unified with the other forces, for example. It works. It works beautifully as I've uh, indicated, but as a fundamental hypothesis, it's clearly ridiculous. And so we need better fundamental hypotheses about ultimate origins. <clears throat> and finally, maybe the most mysterious thing is the thing we uh, started off with in uh, discussing the different languages of nature, uh, the, the, the one that's clearly uh, not established, either in itself or in its translation to uh, the other languages, is the language, the neuronal language of the mind, which somehow has to translate into the world as experienced. And this, to me, is still the mystery of mysteries. Only small inroads have been made on it. 
And then finally, as our former Secretary of Defense reminded us, there are always the unknown unknowns. <laughs> there are things that we haven't had, the questions we haven't had the wit to formulate. There are uh, well, issues we, we may not even know what they are. We didn't know about the dark energy and the dark matter not, not very long ago. So there may be other surprises lurking. However, since I have no idea what they are, whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent. And I thank you for your attention. <laughs> Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't realize I was so long. Okay, but uh, I'll still. We can still take questions. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we'll we'll let a few people get up who want me to leave, and then uh, take some questions for a few minutes. If you have questions, please raise your hands and. Uh, We'll take the mic. Take the microphones, we'll come to you. Uh, you said that uh, quantum bits are very unstable. So. Sorry, uh, it's kind of distorted. So speak slowly and uh, into the mic. Okay. Uh, you said that quantum bits are very unstable, as in uh, disturbances from uh, the surroundings can collapse them. Can somebody rephrase the question? I'm not. I'm um. <laughs> Why are quantum bits unstable? Why are quantum bits unstable? No. Oh. Uh, so, assuming, uh, okay, I accept that quantum bits are unstable, but my question is uh, if they're unstable, when you make calculations on them, how do you read those calculations from the bits? Oh, how do you read the memories out? How do, you, how do you read things out? Right. Yeah. Well, what you have to do is uh, not read them out. <laughs> so you can t you the idea anything that you can feed in you feed in some data mm -hmm. and a question as an array of ones and zeros uh, as if it were a classical data and information. Then you exploit quantum mechanics to do creative parallel processing. But then at the end of the day, uh, you want to project your answer back onto a, a definite classical bit. That's one way. Or else you can uh, measure several times to get the probability and use probability. There are different ways, but your question is very well taken. You know, no, you can't, uh, one of the, the great difficulties here is you can't look inside, for instance, to make error correction. If you want to do error correction, you have to be very, very clever. So uh, it's a fascinating subject with lots of extremely clever mathematics. Okay. Uh, I have another question. Yes. From, this is from uh, yesterday's part of the talk. Uh, so you said confinement of quarks is also local. Yes. Uh, how is that? Okay, so confinement of quarks is the property that uh, the force between quarks uh, 
get is very weak when they're close together. However, uh, if you try to pull a quark away from an anti-quark that's close to it, or if you have three quarks in a proton, if you try to pull one out, if you try to isolate a quark, one of them, uh, you find that you can't do it that, it, that that there are strong forces that come into play that prevent you from doing it. Okay. So you have forces that grow with the distance, which is sounds like it's in danger of uh, uh, violating locality because very distant objects could be exerting extremely strong forces on us. Okay. So there are two two parts to the answer of why that doesn't violate locality. Uh, there's first the answer of principle, which is that uh, the force is made by tubes of color flux, color electric field. I won't, it has to be a little technical here, I'm sorry. Color electric field that as you pull the quarks apart, uh, grows. But its growth is just at the end. So it's a local process. Okay. <laughs> so it's just it's a, so the growth of this tube, as it gets longer, is perfect. So it's it's sort of very very roughly like a rubber band. You pull it apart, but every piece of the rubber band only moves a little bit, a little bit. So it's a local process. Uh, so that the so that's the f one aspect. The other uh, practical aspect is that uh, just like. Uh, in principle, electrical forces are much, much more powerful than gravitational forces. In the graph, I didn't emphasize it, but they're 40 orders of magnitude stronger. Uh, nevertheless, uh, astronomy is dominated by gravity. And uh, in everyday life, we certainly don't feel powerful attractions, at least not of an electrical nature, to uh, other, other people. Uh, and uh, the reason is that the attractions are so positive, to, so, I'm sorry, so uh, powerful that they neutralize themselves. Okay? They would, invo would involve such high energy to pull electric charges apart that, uh, uh, that, that well, you can, it's very difficult to supply that much energy in a small amount of space. When you do, that's something like lightning. Or, to put it another way, uh, well, if you have a positive charge and out there in the universe somewhere else there's a negative charge, the negative charge will inexorably be led to this positive charge and, uh, and neutralize it. Because just because the force is so strong. So because the force is strong, it tends to neutralize itself. Well, the forces between quarks are even much more powerful than uh, electrical forces. They are, you know, they're sort of in the same ratio, roughly speaking, as uh, atom bombs to lightning. So, uh, so the, the forces between quarks are extremely efficient at neutralizing themselves, grabbing nearby anti-quarks or other quarks in such arrangements that they neutralize the forces. And so, uh, the moon is very, very accurately color neutral and doesn't exert any power. Doesn't, we're not connected by a color flux tube to the moon and there's no such um, long-range influence. <laughs> I don't understand why the quantum bits aren't stable. There are, there are just, there's a model of 
it's a human model of reality. I'm not a physicist, so I'm, I'm No, well, they're unstable in a certain sense. It's not that they spontaneously decay. It's that uh, they're very, it's, it would be better to say they're very, very uh, delicate. So if anything observes them, so if they have a significant interaction with the outside world and say deflect an atom from the outside world, uh, then they've been measured. So uh, they're in only one state, not, not this uh, 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 configuration that had many, many states with different probabilities. That's So thank you for your talk, and uh, I'm sorry if my question is a bit off. Um, I'm really not Those from the, the physics kind of field. Like, right? <laughs> uh, but um, so there is this um, assumption that we question all the time, that is, relation sometimes doesn't show the, the, the direction of the causation. And uh, you mentioned that um, the initial seed hom uh, inhomogeneities might have been actually the ones that we observe now in the particles, but extended to cosmic size, right? And how do we know that it's not the contrary, on the contrary direction, that particles are just uh, in, in particle dimensions reproducing? He uh, means, oh, I say sub-universes that somehow... Uh, not sub-universes, oh. but... Uh, instead of the relationships being from the particles to the, co to the cosmic size, being from the contrary, that what we observe now in particles' behaviors could be actually reflecting things from uh, Well, a that's certainly origin. a logical possibility, but it's, it's sort of exactly, this, exactly the sort of thing that locality is not. <laughs> and uh, in practice, locality seems to work extremely well as I emphasized last time. So it does appear that when we do experiments in fundamental physics, uh, they're highly reproducible. Even if you do them in different places or at different times, different phases of the moon. So it doesn't appear that they have uh, dependence on any large-scale structure. Now, oh, I get, well, you're actually on to an interesting, uh, a classic kind of idea in physics uh, called Mach's principle, that this, the, inter the state of the whole world outside that causes, for instance, uh, me to feel a force if I accelerate myself, okay? that, that if I accelerate myself or, uh, or push, push, well, if I'm accelerated, I feel forces, like g-forces. Uh, and uh, the ultimate theory of relativity would say that however you're moving shouldn't have any absolute meaning. So you shouldn't feel such forces if you're accelerating. So Mach had the idea, according to this absolute relativity. Uh, Mach had the idea that it's because you're accelerating with respect to the distant stars that you feel a force. The distant stars aren't accelerating, you're moving relative to them. Uh, that idea was actually very influential on Einstein when he was thinking about his theory of gravity, the general theory of relativity. 
uh, but in the equations that he eventually derived and in all the other equations that have been successful in physics, uh, that idea is not embodied. The, the, the basic actions are always local. So in the future, maybe that idea will make a comeback. But at present, it's not in the successful equations that we use. Is there any relationship between between black, uh, excuse me, dark matter and energy and black holes? Uh, is there any relationship between dark matter and energy and black holes? Well, everything is related to everything else, but uh, there's unlikely to be a very direct relationship. Uh, well, first of all, in the case of dark energy, that's very, very clear because dark energy is about as far from a black hole as you can be. It's perfectly dis uniformly distributed in space and very, very tenuous. So, uh, you know, it's that, it's that average density I talked about, 10 to the minus 30 gram per cc. Uh, now, uh, for the dark matter, you could imagine, since it, you know, it, if it were, it could be in black holes. Black holes might be very difficult to see because they uh, accumulate a lot of matter in a, in a, in a, into small objects that, of course, because they're small, they don't absorb very much or interact very much. Uh, the, uh, so in principle, that could happen. However, we know that the universe started very nearly homogeneous, and so it's very difficult to see how such black holes would have formed. Uh, the only kind of matter that we know about that's capable of losing energy and clumping in a reasonable way is not is uh, ordinary matter. So you could imagine that originally there was more ordinary matter, that some of it collapsed into black holes, and that's what we now call the dark matter. However, uh, that doesn't work either, because it turns out that if you pursue that idea uh, quantitatively, it predicts the wrong abundance of elements. It would predict uh, that there were more protons and neutrons in the early universe, which would lead to a different production of the different kinds of elements, and uh, that's ruled out experimentally. So it's, it's an idea that deserves and has gotten careful consideration for the dark matter, but is not viable. Okay. <laughs>